All right, welcome back. Uh, this is almost the end of the semester, um, basically second to last class where we actually um, read substantive material regarding um, equality and discrimination in Canada. So the purpose of this session is obviously quite similar to what we had um, last week with my own articles, right? kind of take a step back and look at broader issues that are embodied by the provisions that we saw, right? So we looked at section 15 of the Canadian Charter that was basically our sole focus for this course, right? It's it plenty, um, as we saw, of material to look at and understand because even though right, the, the tests and the provisions are relatively straightforward, the ways of applying them are somewhat complex, especially given, right, the kind of hard to pin down nature of equality and discrimination, right? The indicia, the um, ways in which we apply the tests to factual circumstances are somewhat nuanced and complex, more so than in other areas of the law, specifically because the court, the Supreme Court rep repeatedly recognizes that they're basically terms that are so aspirational that they're hard to define. Well, in that sense, we're also bound to see, right, broader social issues embodied in Section 15 jurisprudence. Specifically, we consider here, right, exclusion. So we considered last week, right, Quebec's Bill 21, we considered how equality and discrimination are not protected in Canada, among other things, right? Namely, through the use of the notwithstanding clause, which is this constitutional mechanism, which allows provinces, right, or any government, really, to subtract themselves from the application of the Canadian Charter, and that includes Section 15. Here we see a ground that is not yet fully protected under the Canadian Constitution, and that is either gender identity or, um, or, um, or, or gender expression, right? The distinction between the two is um, in a pretty detailed and interesting way laid out in the article that you had to read for this week. So there's interesting um, issues here, first having to do with provincial protections, right? So you'll recall I said, or you probably won't recall, but I did say um, at the very first session that we don't consider right, the entirety of human rights protections in Canada. Obviously the right to Equality to be free from discrimination is construed as a human right, right? However, it's not solely protected through Section 15. Section 15 is important because, right, it's first the most important protection. Why is that? Because it was basically the first one. It was the protection that inspired all other protections. And in that sense, its interpretation by courts has also, right, um, defined the interpretation of other statutes that protect human rights. Second, the Constitution obviously has right, a different standing in Canada, namely through the fact that it's a Constitution, right? It's something that we're stuck with that we can't really change easily. And as a result of that, it has super legislative right, power. So it can strike down laws, right? Because it's higher than the laws, and there's no way for us to get rid of it quite um, as easily. The ways in which these provisions have been expanded in Canada is through generally human rights codes, which are generally provincial legislation. But as you see from the first article, right, 
basically all provinces in Canada have human rights protections. Kind of similar to what we saw with Mr. Vriand, right? Mr. Vriand had this, this um, Sir Vriand was, of course, a man who was fired because he was gay, right? Went to his job, told his boss he was gay, then the boss fired him explicitly and solely for that reason. And then Mr. Vriand said, well, I want to sue because I don't think it's fair for me to be fired because I'm gay. And the law said, you can't, right? Because there is no protection under a human rights code of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. There is on the basis of a bunch of other things, right? Similar to what we find in section 15, right? Race, gender, all that, not sexual orientation. So that was a human rights code. It was a, it was a provincial law, which does not have constitutional status, right? Is not mandatory, but the province could very, very well not have it. And of course, doesn't apply outside of the province. But that law, gave certain recourses to victims of discrimination, right? Namely, to get compensation for their employer if they're covered. Mr. Friand, as you'll recall, right, went to the Supreme Court and said, the exclusion of me from that protection is not fair because basically, right, even though it was drafted as all these classes of people are protected, right, we learned that really that was an exclusion what it did not say was everyone's protected except for Mr. Briand, but that was the end result of it because, right, a list of people were protected, not including Mr. Briand, who was basically the only class of person, namely based on sexual orientation, who were not protected. And so, right, the court said this contravenes Section 15, so Constitution applies to all provincial laws, including human rights codes, and so if once there's a law, right, Constitution doesn't say there has to be a law, but once there's a law, if Mr. Vriand is discriminatorily excluded from the law, from protection under the law, then that ostensibly violates 15.1. We see here, right, human rights codes again for things that are not protected under the Charter. So when the Supreme Court says, right, well, we're not ready yet to include all sorts of analogous grounds, right? We saw we're not ready to include poverty. We're not ready to include prisoner status. And to a large extent, not ready to include gender expression or identity. And so provinces might disagree with that, right? As Professor Kirkup said, all the provinces except for two seem to disagree with that. And so they have human rights codes that say you are protected on that basis. That's important because, right, Human rights codes generally work that way. So they post-date the charter, right? Obviously don't have the same status, right? It's not as easy to invalidate all sorts of laws with them, but generally they also go further in that protection, right? For governments that are ready and willing to do that, right? To go further in that protection. Their status, as I said, is not constitutional, right? So it's just a law, right? It's just the government passed a law by simple majority, right, as the government always does, right, passes a law, and then that law has supra-legislative status of a sense because it says so, because it says all other laws are invalid to the extent that they are not consistent with this one. Well, of course, you can have a law that says that, right, you can have a law that says anything, really, as long as it's, well, constitutional, right, speaking about terms here. Um, so you can have a law that says it will invalidate other laws. It's kind of good, right? You replicate the, what the Constitution does. 
However, the drawback is it's just a law. And so if some government doesn't think that right people should be protected, or some government doesn't think there should be a human rights code at all, say in Ontario, well, the government by simple majority, in the same way as the law was passed, can just repeal the law, the whole thing, right? With its um, useful consequences. Um, there's other interesting issues, right? Regarding legal history, um, regarding how labels are used, right? Because we use label in the law, we use labels in the law very often, right? because um, we need to, right? Because we have to categorize people to give them certain benefits. Interestingly here, right, in, in the specific context that's explored in the articles, right, it has a medical background. So you'll recall we saw law really having all sorts of relationships with other things, right? So we saw law and religion last week, right? We saw um, first with the reference case, we saw marriage having a religious background. We said marriage really is not religious in itself. Once the government passes a law that says, right, this is marriage, and then this is what happens when you get married, namely that you get or don't get certain things, right, generally money, right, or other legal consequences. Well, right, doesn't have anything to do with what religion you belong to. However, people don't want that definition of marriage to apply to people whom, according to their faith, right, don't fit within what marriage is for. It's kind of weird because marriage in itself is not religious, as we said. The reason it makes sense is because marriage has religious underpinning, of course, right? Marriage was first in a religious text, and quite importantly, the reason it's now in a law that says you get or don't get money or other things, right, is because the government in the first place said, for ostensibly religious reasons, we want to recognize that because it's important in society. So interesting interplay of law and religion here. Same, same thing for Bill 21, right? Which we looked at um, last week. Interestingly, here we have law and medicine, right? So not unusual, right? Especially in the criminal law. What if you wanna to go to court and say, right? I'm not responsible for murder because I didn't know what I was doing, right? The criminal law, unlike other laws, has two requirements, generally speaking. First, you have to do the thing, and second, you have to be evil, right? Basically, you have to have a culpable intent, which might have various meanings, but generally, right, if you kill someone by accident, it's not murder. It's just killing someone by accident. And so you don't go to jail for 30 years for that because it was an accident. Murder is, right, mischievously killing someone. Of course, there's other sorts of intentions, right? If you punch them and then accidentally hit them, then essentially you have, right, some intent similar to that evil intent for murder. And so there's various permutations of that intent. But broadly speaking, in the criminal law, it's not enough for you to have done the thing. You also have to have intended to do the things in the culpable sense of the criminal law says, right? Well, what if you want to go to court now and say, I did not commit murder, not because it was an accident or because I was blind or whatever, right? Did not, um, could not formulate the intent to kill someone. What if your reason is, right, I am mentally ill? Of course, there's such a defense for the very same reasons, right? If it's an accident, you're not evil. And so you don't deserve the consequences that come with murder. Similarly, right, if you are um, completely, right, unable to make a rational decision 
in the moment because of a mental illness, you are not culpable in the same sense. And so there is a defense right, for that kind of situation. Well, of course, Dan, right, how do we decide that? Well, we're going to look at experts, namely psychiatrists, doctors who are going to tell us first who is and is not mentally ill, right? what the, the labels are, then who deserves the labels, and more importantly, when do the labels right, have consequences such that right, the person's intent cannot be formulated? The consequences are such that the person cannot, right, um, cannot rationally make a decision to do something and therefore they shouldn't be responsible. Well, right, this whole paradigm has a medical underpinning. It's based on the same rationale as right, the law more broadly, namely that we don't want to put people in jail when they didn't intend it. But the ways in which it's applied is deeply medical. Same here, right, for, um, for people from the trans community. How do we decide whether or not you get access to right, gender-affirming surgery, which is generally covered by the state? Well, right, there's a thing called gender dysphoria and a thing called the DSM, which is the, the handbook that psychiatrists use that, that lists all the labels that psychiatrists can use, right? And a doctor has to diagnose you with the ant for you to subsequently get access to things. This is also a problem with disability, right? Disability is another ground that we didn't look at that much. We looked at services for autistic kids, didn't look at disability all that much under 15, right? Disability is another thing, right, that has a similar issue, right? Oftentimes, right, the reason, and the research shows oftentimes Dr. Misk labeled people for that reason, but, right, for you to get benefits under certain laws, you have to be a real disabled person. And so some doctor has to say, right, this person has this thing, right, the specific label, like, say, autism, right, that um, then entitles you to have certain benefits under the law. So again, right, deep involvement of the medical profession in getting benefits under certain laws. And you have a critique by both professors, uh, Professor Kirkup, right, and, and, and um, Florence Ashley of right, the extent to which that, right, in fact impedes the progress of the protections under the law for people from the trans community. And frankly, he can think whatever you want, but I'd be inclined to think that they make a pretty persuasive argument. Professor Kirkup kind of pushes it further and says, right, well, if we have a protection of gender expression, that is not something that's intrinsically what he calls minoritizing. Namely, right, if we protect gender expression, right, and that's a recognition that gender to a certain sense is a construct, right? Now, that might be true, right? In nature, we do have people with right, genital, um, genital um, apparatus, right, um, you know what that is. So in nature, that is a naturally occurring thing. And generally, there's two broad types of genital apparatus that you can have, but that's it, right? In nature, there's no utility for you on your passport to be identified by your genital apparatus. In fact, it doesn't really help to know who you are um, if we're only differentiating you from half the people in the world, right? In fact, saying you're a red, redhead might be more useful. More importantly, right, the ways in which we construe what your general apparatus means is 
socially constructed, right? Arguably, right, women did not necessarily like dresses in caves, right? Women did not necessarily play with dolls or do other things that we generally associate with the expression of, right, having that genital apparatus. And so, in that sense, gender expression might be a fitting construct. And to the extent that we accept it in the way that I and, and he has just described, right, there's no reason for that expression to be confined to people, right, the protection of expression to be confined to people who express it a certain way. And so ostensibly, if we construe gender expression that way, everyone should be protected. All gender expressions, or lack thereof, should be protected. Second, we have an interesting interplay there of the criminal law, right? This is something that I talked about in my articles of the state using the criminal law to do things, right? And as we saw, oftentimes the criminal law is a bad tool, right? Um, uh, Florence Ashley, I keep saying professor, she's not a professor yet. So Florence Ashley says, right, that it quotes a, a journalist to the effect that, right, the criminal law is a hammer when the government runs out of tools and often doesn't work pretty well, right, but has very stark consequences and as I said last week in my own article, tends to send a message, right? A send a message as to things that we do or don't accept in society. And oftentimes that message is the most important thing. In other words, we might not really care whether or not right, the criminal law does something good. Oftentimes it doesn't do something good, right? Because it tends to put people in cages for all sorts of reasons, right? They're a bad reason. Generally, it's not a good thing. Right? We don't care about that because the expressive function is more important. And here you have, again, the government using a criminal law. Florence Ashley makes a very cogent argument that basically it's bad for Bill C-16, whatever it is, right, to do something useless because it gives us an illusion of change, an illusion that we're doing something for people in the trans community. I think that makes a lot of sense. And importantly, it does not do anything particularly useful, namely because human rights codes and these provincial protections that we saw already protect gender expression. So if you have a criminal law that says if you do a hate crime, so if you do really bad discrimination against trans people, here's a really bad consequence, generally worse than right, what you get in human rights codes, whatever it is, right, jail or some big fine. Of course, the consequence is more significant, but there's no real progress on protection of rights being made there. Might give us an illusion of change, as she says, right? And on top of that, right, you might not even be disincentivizing the conduct that you don't like. And I think that makes sense, right? People who, um, as she says, right, um, engage in hate crimes generally aren't cold and calculating people. They're, they're hateful people who often in the passion of the moment do something really bad, right? And generally that does not come with, right, an internal idea of, oh, well, I'll go to jail for two years, but it's probably worth it because I really want to do this thing, right? This is not generally how criminals behave. And there's very cogent argument to be made that specifically in that context, it's particularly not how um, criminals behave.
And you see maybe, right, some use of um, research there. Of course, um, I want to defend um, what I get paid to do and whether it's useful or not, right? But you see Professor Kirkup, right, with his history of the term uncovering things that we didn't know, right? You might think he's not really saying anything new in that article. He's just tracing the history of something, right? He's not saying some groundbreaking thing, right? He's not saying, say, Supreme Court was wrong in deciding that case because of this, and then no one saw it, and it's this groundbreaking argument, right? He's just tracing the history of something, but that helps us better understand it, and he's the first person to do it. More importantly, it helps us see, right, whether there's coherence theoretically in the model that we have, which is useful when courts apply it, but more importantly, in assessing what the government's doing. And what we see is governments didn't understand this properly before, and he makes very clear argument to that effect, right? To the effect that, right, the government, when it used the very word gender expression, which he thinks is better than gender identity, more representative of what whatever the government's trying to do, right, in protecting people from the trans community, right, um, the government didn't really realize what the use of that word was, and so, he shows how the Ontario, I think, Human Rights Tribunal applies it, right? And so, even though the government used a word that would be helpful to the trans community, when you look at the legislative intent, right, namely what the word means to the government when it used that word, which is what courts do when they have to find out what the word means, right? The word's not really interpreted as what he shows it to mean, but rather is what the Ontario government meant it to mean. And that is not really gender expression in the way he traces it. And so that's it, really. We can have a, 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 a further discussion on this in class, but these are really the points I wanted to make on this, um, on this reading.